on our theme this morning. And then actually we'll be looking at much of the rest of the chapter next week. And we continue to reflect on what we would, uh, theologians would call the attributes of God. And it's really, we're asking this simple question, what is God really like? And we realize that this question is too big to be answered. And as we enter into each one of these different attributes, kind of talked last week about it's a little unfair because it's like dissecting a frog. We're taking all these pieces together and laying them out on a table and trying to look at them and see what they do. But they're really meant to all exist together and work together. But we're getting this picture of this God that is so, so big. I thought actually Maggie Johnson made a really good point uh, at Connections last week. She commented that as we, as we pent, ponder and reflect on these, these attributes of God, we, we might get this appropriate feeling of, and this appropriate larger and larger understanding of how big God is. But we might on the, kind of make an error in the sense of because, thinking because this God is so big, because he's so other, he must be far removed from the finiteness of my everyday life. And and I think we have to keep remembering as we move through the bigness of God, the otherness of God, that we continue to grasp onto the fact that part of the beauty of this is that though He is transcendent, far above all things, He has made Himself known. And and though he He is Himself so much other than all that we know. He is the one that has drawn near, so near that he was willing to come and put on flesh and make his dwelling among us, to tabernacle among us. And that though he is so holy and so glorious, right, with some of the things that we've gone through, so amazingly holy that Isaiah would, would, would just tremble in the presence of this vision of God on His throne. Woe is me! He has come to us so intimately, those who would believe in Him, that He would say that, that, he would say that even your body would be His temple. And He would indwell the believer, the Holy Spirit of God. How much more intimate can you get than that? How much more personal can you get than that? So we'll continue to wrestle through this tension this morning as we consider God's omniscience. Omniscience. Remember that that, that omni, we talked about that last week, just kind of means all. And now we've got this other word. We can say science, right? Omniscience. And that that just pertains to knowledge. So when we say that God is omniscient, we're saying that the one true eternal God of all creation is all-knowing. That He's limitless in knowledge. Now this is not as kind of an impersonal, vast database, as if God is uh, kind of some super mega divine computer. But rather... His is an infinite knowledge that meets and deals with us in our finite existence in very personal ways. And I think you really hear that in David's tone all through Psalm 139. He's struck. He's taken back. 
by the fact that God knows all. But he's particularly taken back by the fact that God knows him. So we're just going to read these first six verses this morning. Psalm 139, starting at verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. So as I said, David marvels at God's perfect knowledge, but specifically marvels at how it relates to him. Now mankind is made in God's image. And being made in God's image, we are granted the ability to retain and process information like no other creature on earth. Here's a few quotes that I read this week from some science articles and journals. Uh, imaging speed. U.S. researchers discovered that a human brain can interpret images. So what you're seeing gets interpreted by the brain that the eye sees in just 13 milliseconds. It's .013 seconds. Your brain is interpreting the images that it sees. Processing speed. If the human brain were a computer, and again, it's, it's, it's never perfect science to relate our brains to computers, but if a human brain were a computer, it could perform 38,000 trillion operations per second. Memory storage. Now this varies, I understand. <laughs> Memory storage. We're speaking in general terms. The human, this is a, a paragraph, a, a, a quote. A, the human brain consists of about one billion neurons. Each neuron forms about a thousand connections to other neurons, amounting to, to more than a trillion connections. If each neuron could only help store a single memory, running out of space would be a problem. You might have only a few gigabytes of storage space, similar to the space of an iPod or a USB flash drive. Some of you are like, that's where I am. <laughs> Yet neurons combine so that each one helps with many memories at a time exponentially increasing the brain's memory storage capacity to somewhere closer to around, and I don't know even know what this means, 2.5 petabytes or a million gigabytes. Now this is, this is where it gets, gets close to home. It says, for comparison, your brain, if your brain worked like a digital video recorder in a television, 2.5 petabytes would be enough to hold, you ready for this? Three million hours of TV shows. 
3 million hours of TV shows. You would have to leave the TV running continuously for more than 300 years to use up all the storage. It's incredible. It's incredible. There's all kinds of things there that we don't... I mean, how many, th how many people have had a smell or a, you know, a song trigger a memory from 20 years ago? And you're like, what? where did that even come from? Our brains are incredible. Our, our ability to process information is astounding. Yet considering how impressive our brains are, I, I still have this, this line that my mother used to tell me at appropriate times. She'd say, nobody likes a know-it-all. Probably when I was being a know-it-all, right? Nobody likes a know-it-all. And the reason nobody likes a know-it-all is because no one actually does know it all. And if you act like you do, it just kind of comes off like you're a pompous jerk. In reality, there's a lot that we don't know. There's a lot that the most brilliant minds in the world don't know. A lot. There's a lot of real limitations to our brain. Even though the brain is far faster than the world's largest supercomputer, actually far faster, far more incredible, and can store copious amounts of information, tests show that the average person's working memory, what we can kind of hold in the front of our conscious mind at a time, is only three or four things at a time. Your average person, three or four things in your working memory at a time. We're very limited on what we can focus on in one time. There, there, are, there are many things that the brightest scientific minds can explain only in part. For example, scientists can explain a lot about gravity, but they still can't explain really what it is or why it is. Take a step further, and, and scientists don't know or understand what 90% of the matter in space is. And you put those things together, and again, I'm going to read this because I don't understand half of it. One scientist wrote, take our best understanding of gravity, apply it to the way galaxies spin, and you'll quickly see the problem. And I'm like, I don't see the problem. You may see the problem. And he says, the galaxies should be falling apart. Galactic matter orbits around a central point because its mutual gravitational attraction creates centripetal forces, but there's not enough mass in the galaxies to produce the observed spin. In other words, the scientist is saying, we don't know why the whole galaxies, all the all space and galaxies you see, even hold together. Scientists don't fully understand how our bodies are able to repair themselves. They observe it. They can now expect what's going to happen, but they don't know how the body actually knows to do it and is able to do it. Same with the brain. We can, we can track now, or at this point, we can track much, many of its processes, but we just don't really understand how it does everything it does. So much of it is still a mystery. Lava goop kind of hanging.
in our skulls. Even life can't be fully explained by science. Science can explain what keeps someone living, but can't explain life itself. They can't explain what consciousness really is. A scientist named Roger Highfield writes, We know what distinguishes living things from inorganic matter, but scientists may never know where life actually comes from or how it began. what happens when we re remove the creator from the equation. There are many surprising things that still puzzle scientists to this day. Scientists can't explain why you yawn. Uh, science can tell you the benefits of sleep, but can't really tell you why we sleep, or dream for that matter. Some of you might be dreaming right now. read a couple of articles that, uh, about how science, get this, and this is, Google this, many scientists still argue as to why ice is slippery. <laughs> True story. It's like, it's, it's, it's water, it's frozen water, but it, the science of it is actually still baffles many scientists. It's still, they, scientists thought they understood how a bicycle works and stays up and how it's so balanced. But now there's like there's this confusion whether we really understand how a bicycle stays upright and on two wheels and balances itself so well. Science can't explain how birds can navigate as well as they do. If they take these long trips, these long migrations, there's all kinds of stuff like that in nature that they, they observe and they can say, okay, this is... This is, I can observe how it seems to happen, but I don't know why it happens, and I just don't really get how it happens. Scientists can't figure out the mechanics of a cat's purring and don't really know why they do it. Here's a fun fact about our own planet. Oceans cover about what percentage of our planet? Anybody know? It's around 70%. I read over 70% of our planet. Yet it's estimated that 95% of our oceans and up to 99% of our ocean floors have not been explored. There's a lot we don't know. A lot. That's just a little taste. There's a lot we don't understand about ourselves. <laughs> our own bodies, our own minds. Yet to God, it's all clear. There's never anything to puzzle over for God. There's never a mystery. Never anything to be learned. Isaiah 40, 13 and 14. Isaiah asks this rhetorical question, Who has understood the mind of the Lord? Or instructed Him as His counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten Him? And who taught Him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? And again, we're supposed to say, no one. God never has or never will need anyone to teach him anything. His knowledge is, is total. 
the expanse of it infinite. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Nothing escapes his knowing. James Boyce says, next to the knowledge of God, human knowledge is near zero. And quoting A.W. Tozer in this wonderful book, The Knowledge of the Holy, he says, God knows instantly and effortlessly all matter and all matters, all mind and every mind, all spirit and all spirits, all being and every being, all creaturehood and all creatures, every plurality and all pluralities, all law and every law, all relations, all causes, all thoughts, all mysteries, all enigmas, all feeling, all desires, every unuttered secret, all thrones and dominions, all personalities, all things visible and invisible in heaven and on earth, motion, space, time, life, death, good, evil, heaven, and hell. Because God knows all things perfectly, He knows no thing better than any other thing, but all things equally well. He never discovers anything. He is never surprised, never amazed. He never wonders about anything. We hear God asking questions in Scripture. It's never because He's lacking knowledge. <laughs> it's for the benefit of the one being questioned. I've always marveled at God's vast knowing, even as a child, that I can look up into the heavens and see the stars and the planets and, and the, the Milky Way galaxy, and, and then we know that there's much, much more beyond and say God knows it all. God has created it all. He's intimately acquainted with it all. But yet you can also jog down the street and you can see every speck of dirt and every rock and every insect moving about and every blade of grass and God knows it all. Down to every molecule, every atom. He knows every passing thought and every idle word. Nothing escapes His knowing. Things that have been a century ago and things that will be are just as crystal clear to, to him as things that are right now. Now I think about all this and I realize that God knows everything. That also means that God knows everything about me. Tozer prays I can inform thee of nothing, and it is vain to try to hide anything from thee. You like being stared at. <laughs> I did that to Derek because I thought he could take it. He'd try and stand me right down. Who here likes being stared at? I love my kids. I know them well. They know me. If I mess with them at the table and I just stare at them, and Julie's like, why are you staring at me? We immediately, what's on my face? What's, why, don't, why don't we like to be stared at?
Why? The ambiguity of it? What do you mean by that? They don't know why. You don't know why they're clearing that shit. Okay. Or too personal? Too personal. Being known as scary. Ah. I'm sorry? You feel like being exposed. Yeah, you feel like you're being exposed. Yeah. There's no one as self-aware as humans. I think we're the only creatures that watch. Is, there's this paradox that, that comes to play in our lives. Every, every one of us, every one of us, and, and I get some of you are an introvert, some of you are an extrovert, I get that. We're complicated, there's many layers to who we are, but every one of us has this deep, deep desire to be known. But also, every one of us is terrified of being known of being fully known. That's why we clean up, clean ourselves up and we learn to act certain ways and certain people kind of put an image of themselves up in front that, that really they know is not quite them because we've all had this thought. If they really knew who I was, would they like me? Would they love me? Would they want to even stand in the same room as I do? If they really could open up the closet of my brain and my heart and see everything, but God really knows you. David says, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. He told his son Solomon, the Lord searches every heart and understands every motive behind the thoughts. Daniel quoted Jesus this morning. He says that God knows you so intimately that he knows every hair on your head. At times Jesus challenged what people were thinking. Imagine that. He'd say, why are you thinking such evil things? Jesus knew Nathaniel before he even met him physically. Nathaniel comes over, Philip brings him to Jesus, and Jesus is like, well, here's a true Israelite in every way. And he's like, how do you know me? Oh, I saw you, I saw you the fig tree before Philip called you. Jesus meets a Samaritan woman at the well. He just tells her her whole life story. I'm not married. Well, we know that. <laughs> you've been with a few men. You've been married several times. The one you're with now is not your husband. I, I know. How unsettling would that be? At one level, the fact that God knows us completely 
can be terrifying. Again, James Boyce asks, What are we to do in regard to God, with whom all hearts are open and all desires known? There is nothing to be done. Nothing can be done. Consequently, it is an awareness of the knowledge of God, as well as His sovereignty and His holiness, that produces anxiety and even dread in fallen men and women. one of those things a lot of people don't want to even think about. Nothing is hidden from God. Isaiah 29.15 Woe to those who go to great depths to hide their plans from the Lord who do their work in the darkness and think, who sees us? Who will know? Psalm 90 verse 8 You have set our iniquities before you our secret sins in the light of your presence. How does that make you feel? Think about the things that you would want absolutely no one to ever know. And I know you got some. The ugliest places of your heart. The things that you've done that absolutely nobody else knows about. And... The psalmist is telling us that those things come into the light of God's presence. Makes you feel naked. Made Adam and Eve feel naked. It's a knowledge that sent them hiding from a God that they had this perfect intimacy and relationship and friendship with. We've been hiding ever since. Don't look at me too closely. This far and no further. High contact for a minute, but let's not get weird. We all want to be known, but we're terrified of being fully known. We all know what lurks within us. And a lot of it isn't pretty. And to be laid bare, to be exposed, to be naked before God can make us shudder. But what if you didn't have to hide? And what if you didn't have to run from the God of all knowledge. But instead, you could run to Him. What if, him what, if, what if instead of Him being someone that you're trying to hide behind every tree from, He could be the one that is your very refuge? When you grasp what God has done for you through Jesus, you realize just that. That God who knows you better than you know yourself has chosen to love and forgive you in that place when you come to Jesus. 
And that it's in that love and grace that we find freedom to be exposed. To be known as we really are. One more time out of Tozer's book. It's a great few lines. He says, To us who have fled for refuge, to lay hold upon the hope that is set before us in the gospel, how un un unutterably sweet is the knowledge that our Heavenly Father knows us completely. No talebearer can inform on us. No enemy can make an accusation stick. No forgotten skeleton can come tumbling out of some hidden closet to abash us and expose our past. No unsuspected weakness in our characters can come to light to turn God away from us. Since He knew us utterly before we knew Him and called us to Himself in the full knowledge of everything that was against us, for the mountains shall depart, and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from thee. Neither shall my covenant from my peace be removed, saith the Lord, that hath mercy on thee. James Boyce says, because of Christ's work, God no longer looks at us, on us as sinners, but as those who have become righteous in Christ, we now can stand before Him rather than hide. Not because God has been ignorant of our sin or has refused to care about it, but because He has known about it and has dealt with it perfectly. It's in that place. And it's in, only in that place that place of knowing Jesus. That place of that, that imagery of as, as Adam and Eve sinned and God made sacrifices and, and took those animal skins and wrapped up their nakedness. That that would just be a picture that those who come to Jesus would be wrapped in His righteousness. It's in that place and only in that place that instead of God knowing everything about us being something that brings terror to our souls... It brings us comfort. Because now He is the Father that loves us. Now He is the Father that has forgiven us. Now He is the Father that works out all things for the good. J.M. Motyer says, So long as I am looking at my own self-pleasing and away from God, I shall feel His overwhelming knowledge as a threat. As soon as I turn from sin and to Him, it becomes a comfort. It's interesting, that passage that uh, Daniel spoke of, at least in the Gospel of Luke, he, Jesus actually starts by talking about how you should really not be afraid of men that could kill your body. But you should fear God who could cast your body and soul into hell. But then he says, but this God is the God that has even the hairs on your head numbered. And he knows every sparrow. 
And he's basically like, listen, don't worry. You're worth a whole lot more than a few little birds. Knowing him, being in Christ, means God's knowledge is my comfort. Jesus says in Matthew 6, 8, when he teaches us how to pray, he says, listen, even before he gets into his prayer, he says, your heavenly Father knows what you need before you ask him. There's comfort there. I, be, I come before God fumbling over my words, and what should I pray, and how should I pray? Jesus is like, pray this way, but just know God already knows. It's a comfort that God knows even the good that we do in secret. Jesus teaches again in that Sermon on the Mount that, that when we give and we pray and we fast, we shouldn't do these things for men to see, but for God to see. Because He is the God that sees and rewards what is done in secret. It should be a comfort for us that Jesus shared our humanity. As Hebrews 12, 18 tells us, because he himself was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. It should be a comfort to us that the God who knows, who knows us completely, who is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, knows that he will complete what he started in you. In Philippians 1.6, Paul says that he is confident that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. What comfort. And in that place, we can actually begin to find a freedom, I think, to stop hiding from one another. To stop being so afraid. To be able to share with one another who we really are. To see one another, co human, <laughs> all with pains and failures and fears, sins that need to be confessed and moved away from, together, known by God. For as the condemnation of God melts away in Christ, what do we have to fear from one another? So next week I'll spend more time in 139, Psalm 139 as we consider God's omnipresence. But this week I want to simply close with David's final thoughts in the psalm, verses 23 and 24. Concerning it, a man named R.T. France writes, The psalmist concludes that since God's scrutiny is inevitable, the right way is to submit freely to that scrutiny and to God's direction of his life in the way everlasting. And as I pondered on these things this week, I simply wrote a note to myself. In view of all this, I am safe to pray. And I invite you to pray with me along with David. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me 
in the way everlasting. In Jesus' name, amen.